That preeminent modern theologian, did you hear that? The preeminent modern theologian said it so well, Mr. Miyagi, must have balance, must have balance. Say that with me, would you please? Hey, that's real good. Must have balance with a southern accent. That was pretty good. And that's true in so many areas of life, if you think about it with me. Take, for example, food. If you eat too much food, you can get heavy. If you eat too little food, you can become anorexic and sick. Prone to becoming uh, ill. We found out with our little baby that something called potassium is real important. If you have too little of that in your body, it's, it will kill you. And if you have too much of it in your body, it will kill you. It's true in so many areas of life. It's also true when it comes to God. God has all of these attributes, and he's in perfect balance with all of them. Man comes along, however, and can emphasize his attributes, one to the neglect of another, and we end up in trouble. For example, God is perfectly holy and perfectly loving all the time. And I'm glad of that, aren't you? Because his love balances his holiness. There ought to be a loud amen. Right? Good. <laughs> and his holiness keeps his love pure. And amen to that. That's right. Man comes along, though, and if we emphasize his holiness and never teach of his love, then we're going to have people walking around in fear of God. But if we emphasize his love to the neglect of his holiness, there's a very real danger that we'll end up with a lot of people walking in license. So we must have balance. We want to walk in balance in all things, especially in the area of this series that we've been talking about, uncontrolled anger. We want to walk in balance, and that is, in fact, how all of us at Quail Ridge Church walk, right? Isn't this how all of us walk, just like that, right there, in perfect balance? What? Well, absolutely. <laughs> Can I talk to your wife? <laughs> This is how we walk, or at least this is how we want to walk. But then something happens in our life, and we end up with something like that. We get out of balance. And we get out of balance in this area, the one that we're discussing, the area of anger. Something causes us to go out of balance. Did you hear the key word? Did you hear the key word? Something causes us to go out of balance. It's very important that we stress that this morning. Because anger is what's called a secondary emotion. The point is that anger does not exist by itself. Anger does not exist in a vacuum. People don't just naturally walk around with uncontrolled anger. There is something that causes that anger to go out of balance. And that fact, my friends, that anger has a cause, is what provides the basis for what we're going to be studying this morning. For the past couple of weeks, we said that in this study we were going to focus not so much on the effects of the anger, though they are myriad, 
and how to deal with those effects, we said what we were going to do was focus on the causes of uncontrolled anger. We didn't want to treat the symptoms here so much as the disease. We wanted to get to the root of the issue, to the source of the problem. I'd put it this way, rather than focus on cleaning up the mess, we'd rather avoid the mess altogether. Right? How many of you have ever had to go to a spouse or to your child and try to clean up the mess? And wouldn't it be so much easier if we didn't have the mess to clean up? Now thus far, we've identified two causes of uncontrolled anger. The first one a couple of weeks ago blocked goals, where the illusion of our control gets challenged. Right? You heard the key word there. The illusion of our control. And when we get blocked goals in our lives, we tend to become angry because God has become offended. Right? Rooted in the lie of Genesis chapter 3 that we shall be like God. And we think that we have sovereignty over this world, and we don't. And so when we get black holes, we tend to become angry. A second one, which we looked at last time, was what we call trauma times. Trauma times. When events in our life and circumstances in our life deal with traumatic blows, and our emotions just skyrocket, and when our emotions are stuck at a high level, we tend to operate at that high level and minister uncontrolled anger to those around us. Today I want to continue to look at the issue of trauma times, elevated emotions, with an even more specific cause of uncontrolled anger and an equally specific cure that God provides. Before we do that, however, let's pray. Father, this is an area that all of us struggle with at one time or another. Because every one of us lives in a world that's cursed by sin. And that means every one of us receives hurt. Every one of us encounters trauma at the hands of others. And that can lead to a very real expression of uncontrolled anger in our lives. And then we end up hurting others. And Father, we don't want to do that. We want to walk in balance. We want to walk in love. We don't want to beat up people, especially those that are dear to our hearts. And Father, we believe that there's a specific cure that's taught in your word. And we want that cure. And there's been so much confusion in this area, so much lack of responsible teaching by the church in this area. But Father, I pray that your spirit would overrule the lies that many of your people have believed. That the truth would be knit on our hearts, that we might find the freedom for which Christ died to make us free. Indeed, Father, if there's any lie that comes forward today from this time, I pray that your spirit would snatch it out of the hearts and minds of your people, that only truth would reign supreme. So we yield to you completely for you to be the teacher and you to bring glory to yourself. We thank you in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, let's return to this person that we find here. And notice, please, on the overhead, that you don't have to be a rocket scientist to identify that this is an angry person. 
If you are not presently encountering the effects of their anger, you can surely see the path of devastation that they have left behind them. Anger is readily recognizable by anybody. It's not hard to see. I'm reminded of a man who came to see me several years ago. He had been referred to me by someone. And the someone that referred him to me said, Frank, you got to watch out for this guy. He is prone to violence. He is prone to erratic behavior. My friend, he told me, you might even have to protect yourself with this guy. I said, thank you for referring him to me. So in he came. And he was basically everything that this person had told me that he was. He came in ranting and raving and cursing and swearing. And he vented in my office for about 20 to 25 minutes. And when he was done, he folded his arms as if to wrap up the package, put it in my lap and say, There, what are you going to do about it? So I prayed a short prayer. Help! Looked him in the eye. And I got to tell you, this is led by the Holy Spirit, my friends, because this is not Frank. But I looked him in the eye, this angry, vehemently angry man, with rage on his face. And I said, what hurts you so bad? And that man melted in front of my eyes. And he began to weep. And he wept, and he wept, and I sat back and just let him weep for what must have been another 20 to 25 minutes. And when he gathered control of himself, he looked up at me with his tear-filled eyes, and this is what he said. You're the first one who ever saw my pain. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing, my friends? You see, what happens is this thing over here, this anger, is, is so obvious and, and so fearful, really, for many of us that encounter it. This is what we tend to see. And we don't see the cause of the anger. We don't see the hurt and the pain that's gone on which has brought this man to this position. We don't see the hurt. I want to show you how this works. What happens is, is this person is walking in balance, the hurt comes to his life, and the hurt comes over here and it drives up the anger. When you're up here with your anger, what are you reminded of? Yeah, it reminds you of the hurt. Which in turn does what? Drives up the anger, which in turn keeps your focus on the hurt. And so this is what happens. It's kind of like throttling up an engine. Like that. And this is all going on inside. And now we have a revved up human being. I could call this the pressure cooker syndrome. How many of you are old enough or willing to admit that you know what a pressure cooker is? 
Okay. You're secure in your identity. Pressure cooker was an old pot that had threads on it. And what you could do is you could screw the lid on so that the lid wouldn't come off and you could crank the heat up on that puppy. And I mean, it would really build pressure in there. And because it was screwed on, the lid would stay on. Now, what would happen if you tried to screw off that lid with all that pressure in there? You were in for major trouble. Yeah, that's right. It would, ba-boom, it would explode. Oh, you, this is first-hand experience. Okay. Okay. So what pressure cookers had, my friends, is they had a little button on them that you could push and let the steam off. And this is exactly what happens with human beings. We have an outlet. Because you and I were not made to live with a pressure cooker. Think about it, my friends. You and I were created to live in a garden paradise. Look around you, please. This is not it. So what happens is we end up with this pressure cooker going on inside of us, and there has to be an outlet. We were not made for that. And so this steam gets vented. Now here's the key question. Where does it get vented? Do we let this button get pushed at church in front of 400 people? No, not unless you're a child. Or if you're going to act extremely childlike. But you don't let your venting button get pushed in front of 400 people. Why not? Because it's not safe. You've got a reputation to protect. Do you let that venting button get pushed in front of 150 people at a grocery store? No. Where do you let the button get pushed, my friends? Yeah, at home. Why? Because it's safe at home. And what happens is you end up beating up the ones that you least want to beat up. We call these kinds of people ulcer givers. And believe me, that's exactly what they do. Now, most of us really don't want to do that. So what we do is we will bypass those people. This is what some of us do. And we'll turn the anger in against ourselves. And this is what is commonly known it's depression. I want you to understand this, please. There are other things that cause anger besides hurt and pain. But we're focusing on today is, is that specific area. But there are other things. Just in the same way, there are other things that cause depression. But we are focusing today on anger-related depression. And so please hear this when I say this to you. Many, many, many times, you show me an angry person, I'll show you a hurt person. But most of us don't see it. And in the same way, many, many, many times you show me a depressed person, I'll show you an angry person. They do not like what is going on in their lives, but rather than vent the anger and be an ulcer giver, they turn the anger inward against themselves and become an ulcer getter. And it's a socially acceptable form of anger. And I get people in my office like this, and they're depressed. And I'm not making fun of depression, please hear me, but look at the countenance. I mean, the last thing you think of is that that's an angry person. But many times that's exactly what's going on and we've got to get at the root of it. Ulcer givers. Now please understand that there are some of us in the world who are both of these. We're ulcer getters and we're ulcer givers. Now we don't like to live like this, do we? Does anyone like to live like that? Any show of hands? Because we'd like to see you immediately. 
No, nobody likes to live like this. So we want to effect a cure. Well, let's take it from over here. If you want to get a cure, you don't like being depressed, what do you do? You go to a doctor or you go to a counselor. And what will they prescribe for you? Valium, lithium, Prozac, Xanax, any one of the new wonder drugs. Now, here's the key question, my friends. What are they treating? Symptom of the disease. They're treating the symptom. Now, please understand me here. Please hear this very closely. I am not saying that is not a viable thing to do. In many cases, some of the people that I deal with are so depressed, so dominated by their emotions, that we need to treat some of that and get them down in an emotional level because they're not in a position to be able to hear the truth. They're that much upset. And we've got to get them a semblance of control in their lives. And I, I'm not one to say that treating that is wrong with medication. What I am saying is let's not just leave it at that. If it's anger-related, let's get on and treat the issues as well. So what happens is if you go to a smart... Listen, let me just show you how this works. If this is all we did, look what would happen. You as the one who is depressed because of anger, who do you continue to go to see? The doctor. I can't put a white coat on this thing, Bill. But what does the doctor do? He prescribes the drugs for you. The drugs work, in a sense. So you continue to go to him. The pharmacies continue to sell the drugs. So they profit. The doctor profits. You profit. Everybody wins. But not everybody wins. Because what they're treating is feeling. They're not administering freedom. And are we into feeling in the body of Christ or are we into freedom? We're into freedom. The freedom which Jesus Christ died to make us. Free. So if you were to go to a smart doctor, like Bill Lovell. Right? Right, Bill? Smart doctor. Smart counselor. What he would do is he might prescribe the medication for you to help get you down, but then he's going to suggest that you go to some counseling to get at the root of the issues. Which, in fact, the dear brother does, because he sends them all to me. Thank you, Bill. Keeps me very busy. Now, if you were to go to a smart counselor like that, he would say, okay, well, we're going to treat this. We might give you some medication, but we know that this is anger-related. So what are we going to do? We're going to start to treat the anger. How are we going to do that? We're going to teach you anger release therapy. That's where you go out in the field and scream your guts out and get it out. Or you go in and you punch pillows and get it out. We'll add to that some relaxation therapy. You know, that's where you put the headphones on and listen to the sound of the waves and the seagulls and the birds. And, and you learn to relax, you see, and train yourself to do that. Does it work? Yeah. Yeah, it does. But what's happened, just like over here, we haven't treated it at its source. The heat is still on. With the heat still on, what's going to happen? The pressure is going to come back. And so you get hooked on the counseling and you get hooked on the therapy and you've got to go back again and again and again and again. And you get hooked on the drugs and so you've got to keep taking them and taking them and taking them instead of getting into the freedom. The pressure cooker has to be turned off. We've got to turn the heat off at its source. That's the issue. And where is the source? The source is way over here with the hurt. Well, what's the next question? Why don't we treat the hurt in our culture?
Think about that, my friends. Why don't we treat the hurt? May I suggest a couple reasons? One is because it's messy. It's messy to delve into the junk of people's lives. And this happens two ways. One, it happens on the part of the people who are, don't want to walk through the pain. They want to avoid the pain. They don't want to deal with the issues. I have it happen all the time. I've had people come to my office. I think of this one young lady who came to me and, and, and we walked her through so many things of her identity in Christ and the grace of God. And she embraced so much and she entered into so much freedom, but she only entered so far into the freedom. Because it, when it came to the issue of dealing with uncontrolled anger caused by hurt, she didn't want to deal with it. And like Jonah, she ran. And she's running to this day. And every once in a while, she moved out of town. Every once in a while, she comes back into town. And she'll come here to worship. And she'll sit back there. And our eyes will meet. And I'll look at her. And sometimes I'll talk to her afterwards. I said, what's going on? And she said, I know, I know. I got to do it. But I can't. And so this is what happens. People don't want to walk through the pain. It's messy. They'd much rather have a microwave fix. Just give me the drug and make me feel better. But it's a temporary fix. And it's feeling, not freedom. And you're just settling for so much less than what God wants to bring you. The other is counselors don't want to get involved in the pain. It's messy. Again, some people, it, it's an issue of fear. I mean, what do I deal with it? I get people referred to me all the time from other pastors. I, I just, I'm not a counselor. I think every single one of us is a counselor in the body of Christ, my friends. Because who is inside of us? The Holy Spirit, who is a wonderful counselor. We got the answers to life. But what happens is if we don't know who we are, and if we don't know the power of the cross, then we're going to have a feeling of inadequacy. And a lot of people in the helping professions, this is where they are. So one is it's messy. That's one of the reasons we don't treat the hurt. And here's another. We don't know how. We don't know how to treat the hurt. I need some notes. I, I know this from my own life, my friends. When I was 22, 23, and uh, I had turned down my contract and I decided to go into seminary, I realized that if I was going to be a shepherd of God's people, I could not continue to live the way that I had lived with all of my anger. And there had been so much junk in my life. And I knew that I needed to learn how to love. So when I was in seminary, what I did is I went for counseling. First of all, think about right there. Think about that right there. How many people struggle to go? I don't want to go. In fact, nine years ago, when God opened our eyes to the new covenant, when God began to work on my case and crash me hard, and my life was being devastated, I made a phone call to somebody named Larry Crabb. Y'all know him? And I called him and I said, you got to help me here. I'm dying. He said, well, I'm booked up. I can see you in 18 months. 
But you don't understand, I'm dying. D-Y-I-N-G, you know, dead. And not only that, I got angry flesh, so you know what I'm doing while I'm dying? I'm giving what I have to everybody around me. I'm killing them too. Murdering my wife, murdering my kids. He's okay, we'll see you in two weeks. Got the plane ticket, Monday morning, 6.30, ready to leave. Got out of the house, walked into the car, said goodbye to Janet, kissed her goodbye, all that. She closed the door. Cold weather up in Delaware. You don't leave the door open. Got in the car, turned the key, started to back out, and went, This is stupid. I shouldn't have to do this. I'm a Christian. I have Christ. I don't need this. Pulled the car back in the driveway, turned off the keys, got out of the car, closed the door, took my suitcase, went up to the door, opened the door, went inside. There's Janet. What are you doing? I don't need to go. She's, get out of here. <laughs> You're going. Why didn't I want to go? Pride. Don't want to face the junk. But I finally realized I had to go, so I went. And I poured out my hurt. I poured out things that I had never told anybody in my life to this guy. And let me tell you something, it felt good to pour it out. You know that? I mean, it really felt good to just take all that junk that had happened to me and just dump it out. Because he'd carried it for so long as a deep, dark secret. And the man listened. And he was empathetic. And he ministered unconditional acceptance to me no matter what I told him. And after a few weeks, it was over. But guess what? There was no cure. It felt good just to get it out, but he didn't know how to treat it. All he could do was listen. And how many of you know that's a great, what do they call those things, placebos? That was a great placebo. Because I got it out. And I felt better for a lot of years. But it wasn't a cure and it all came back. What happened? The man didn't treat the hurt. Why not? Because he didn't know how. Hear me, my friends. There is only one cure for hurt. There's only one. It's called a cross. It's called forgiveness. It's called the most incredibly radical thing that a man or a woman can do on the face of this planet. It's owning up completely to what a person has done to you. Not excusing it. I've had that happen so much. I did it. I've had people in my office do it all the time. I remember one lady with her father who was such a, a real pistol in her life. And as she got older, she understood that her father had had a tough life growing up himself. And so that became her outlet. Well, you know, my dad had such a tough life. I ministered compassion to her dad now. But compassion isn't forgiveness. She needed to own what was done. Why? Because here's a basic principle of life. You can't give away something you don't own. Steve Wilson cannot give you my car. Why? Because he doesn't own it. But if I give him my car, now he can give it to you. It's a basic principle of life. You've got to own completely what was done for you. And many of us don't want to do that. We want to excuse it. We want to forget it. It's one of the biggest lies ever told in church, is that forgiveness means forgetting. 
Don't you ever let anybody lie to you like that. Forgiveness means I remember and still choose to forgive. Forgiveness doesn't mean that I automatically restore that person. God doesn't restore people without repentance. Neither do we. But we do forgive them. Forgiveness is separate from restoration. Neither do we go and verbalize forgiveness to a person. It is a matter of the heart, the New Testament says, between me and my God. So we've got to own the hurt, and then we can do the radical thing, which is called giving it away. Now let me show you how this works, and we've done this before, so we're going to move through this real quick. Most of us don't do that. Most of us allow something called time to smooth over our hurts. But we really haven't done that. What's happened is we continue to nurse it deep down, and it's still there. Let me show you how this works. Here's a hurt in the past. But what most of us do with a hurt in the past is we parade that thing into the present in our minds. And we have the ability to do that. How many of you know that? And it's kind of like a video player. It's rewind and play, rewind and play, rewind and play. And we bring the past into the present. Even though it's not happening today, what ends up happening? It sure feels like it is. It feels today just like it happened 20 years ago. And here's the other danger of this. We freeze that person in our lives in the very worst moment of their life. And we turn them into a hideous monster. Are you with me on that? Twenty years ago, this person abused me. I freeze that in my mind as a picture. And I continue, rewind and play, rewind and play, rewind and play. And this person ceases to be a human being. I have captured them in the moment of their worst. And they are now a hideous monster to me. Instead of a human being that happened to sin against me. See how that works? Now they may deserve to be confronted. And they may deserve to be punished. But my friends, that's not our job. There was a person in my life that I used to rehearse in my mind how I was going to uh, minister to them the next time our paths crossed. To show you how bad this was, when we visited California, I'm going to be a little vulnerable here, I told my bride, if we're in a mall or something like that when we're out visiting, and I tell you, babe, get the kids and get in the car, I said, you do it. And don't question, just do it. Because I, to be quite honest, didn't know how I would respond with this man. I had rewound and played and rewound and played and rewound and played so many times that I was at level nine, ready to kill. Vengeance is mine, Seth Frank, was basically what it was. Now please understand, this guy from 20 years ago is trucking. He's not thinking about me. Who am I having for lunch? I'm having myself. And this is the point that you and I have got to reach, my friends. It is not our job to, to minister the vengeance. It may be our job to confront, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But we have got to love ourselves enough to do the incredible thing called forgiveness. Did you hear that? We've got to what? Love ourselves. I want you to say this, please. Forgiveness is for me. When you forgive someone, it's not for the person that hurts you. A lot of times they could care less. 
Forgiveness is for you to set you free from what they did to you. That's what it's for. Please understand this. What we do with our hurt is often worse than the hurt itself. Somebody may have hurt us ten years ago. And please understand this. We are a victim. And I don't want to do anything to minimize what happened to you. Please, please don't hear me say that. I know it was wrong. I know it hurts. And you were never created for that hurt. You were never created to have happened to you what happened to you. It's a terrible thing. But please hear this. What you and I do with that hurt is often worse than the hurt itself. We become victimizers. We were the victim, but then we become the victimizers of everybody around us as we cease to be vessels of love and vessels of the life of Christ. And you know who else we victimize and victimize supremely? Who? Ourselves. We become ugly, hideous distortions of who we were created to be. Nine years ago, when I finally entered into the arena of forgiveness, I was at a counseling session, and this guy told me what to do, and so I made my list. And, you know, to be honest with you, it was a homework assignment. How do you do homework assignments a lot of time? Right? Do we do that? Yeah. So I'm doing the homework assignment. People I need to forgive, so I remember. Well, I need to forgive Julia when I was 13, because Julia broke up with me, and I was a hunk, and she shouldn't have broken up with me, you know. Janet's not here today to amen the babysit. Uh, I need to forgive the baseball coaches because they didn't pick me for the all-star team and they should have because I had the most strikeouts that year and so, you know, I'm doing this kind of stuff, you know. But about halfway down the list, this stuff started to come out of me because I had prayed, Holy Spirit, will you please search me and show me any wicked way in me? And all of a sudden I'm writing and I wrote four and a half pages, single-spaced, of all these things that had been done to me that some of them I didn't even know that were there. And so I went into my counselor and he told me, he says, well, Frank, he says, let's teach you how to do forgiveness. And I said, okay. He says, I said, well, here's my list. <laughs> he says, well, which one do you want to do? And he says, well, why don't we do this one at the top? And so I had to confess. I was doing this like a homework assignment. I was just sort of, you know, tripping through it. But about halfway through, the Holy Spirit, I think, began to take over and stuff came out of me that you wouldn't believe. He said, okay, Frank, why don't you look at the list there and go down the list. And when you get to where you think the Holy Spirit was really working, point it out. So I pulled out the list, and I began to look. And I got down the list, and all of a sudden I went, <gasps> He said, what? I said, oh my God, it's me. i got to forgive me before I forgive all these ugly things that were done to me. i got to forgive me. And he laughed. And I had to forgive him. And I said, what are you doing laughing? And he said, well, Frank, this happens a lot of times. I had allowed myself to become this ugly thing instead of the beautiful creation that God had made. Beautiful creation that God had made me. A vessel of life and love and gentleness and I was anything but. And Janet and the kids could amen if they were here. Here we show you how this works. Here we are trucking in life and look what happens. Somebody hurts us. How many of you know it's not fun to be hurt? And we don't want to get hurt again, so what we do is we build this little castle around ourselves and we call it a castle of self-protection. And we got a drawbridge here and we pull that drawbridge up because there ain't nobody ever going to hurt me again. Can you relate to this? 
Then what happens? It works. It works, my friends. You're able to keep people out of your life. It's so very effective. Because you're so strong and so firm, people can't get close to you. You're like a junkyard dog on a leash. People can get so close, but they're not going to go any closer. I mean, seven years of ministry, I had maybe five people come to me for counseling. I remember one woman afterwards, after we broke and began to understand the new covenant, she came to me and says, you know, I like you now. I didn't like you before. But here's the problem, my friends. It works so well, it doesn't just become a castle of self-protection. It also becomes a prison. Just like people can't get to you, guess what? You can't get out. And that's really sad because Jesus has made you something very beautiful. You're a vessel of his own life. You are, you are like no one else on the face of this planet. You have the ability to express the life of God because of your unique body and your unique personality. You have an ability to express the life of Jesus like no one else on the face of this planet. But it's not happening. Because you're ugly. Because you're protecting yourself so fiercely. Just like people can't get in, Jesus can't get in. Jesus is not going to fight against your will and overrule it. He will fight against your will to get you to bend it and shape it, but he will not overrule you. He will not force himself on you. God will let you go through your life as a castle if you want. God will let you go through your life as a prison if you so choose. That is the horror of our free will. You want an example? Jonah. Jonah, I'm going to use you, son. I want you to go in. I want you to preach to the Ninevites. Ninevites, they are mean people. They are wicked people. They have abused Israel. I know if I go to Nineveh and preach, you'll save them. And I want them saved. So instead of going there, I go in the opposite direction. What's God do? Sends a storm. He's not going to force, but he's going to try to shake. So he sends a storm. The, the sailors in the boat, what do they do? Something's wrong. There must be sin here somewhere. Jonah says, it's me. You're the cause of all this trouble? Yeah. I'm disobeying God. Because I'm bitter and angry and I hate those Ninevites. And I'm not going there because they'll save them. I tell you, they'll save them. Well, you better repent, son. Nope. Throw me in the sea. I'd rather die than see those Ninevites saved. But what's God committed to? Not just to see the Ninevites saved, he's committed to Jonah. So what does he do? Sends a big fish, swallow Jonah. Right? Three days, two nights, in the fish. Then where does God take it? All the way to Nineveh. Spits him up on shore. Up chucked Jonah. Where's he been for three days, folks? In the belly of a fish. What's in the belly of a fish? Gastric juices. Acids. What do acids do to clothes? They, they begin to eat it away. What do acids do to your hair? Bleach it white. Some of you know about bleach, too. Oops. Oh, we won't get into that. But um, what, is it, what does acid do to your eyes? Red. Can you imagine what Jonah looked like? He goes traipsing into Nineveh. All right, I'll be obedient, God. Acid-eating clothes, bleached white hair, fiery red eyes. And he walks in and everybody goes, you know, the acids will mess with your throat too. 
And so he walks in, he goes, repent. And what do the people of Nineveh do? Hooray, we'll repent. See? And the whole nation comes to God. Over a hundred thousand people. The greatest revival in all history. And what's Jonah do? He gets mad. I knew it. I knew God had saved these people. Unforgiveness. What does he do? He goes up on the mountain and he packs. What does he do? He makes he a little plant. And he has a little love affair with the plant. So you'll do some really neurotic things when you walk in bitterness and unforgiveness. He has a love affair with a plant. 100,000 people just got saved. He's having a love affair with a plant. It's an idol. What does God do with idols? He takes them away. So he sends a hot wind and he sends a worm to eat the plant. And now Jonah loses his plant. And now he's really upset because his plant died. 100,000 people got saved and his plant died. So God comes to him and says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And what's Jonah do? I do well to be angry. One of the most troubling things to me is that book ends right there. And you know what that tends to tell me? That man never changed. I believe that Jonah is going to be the least rewarded saint in the kingdom and have the greatest revival in all history because God will not force his way on you. He will let you remain an ugly critter if you want to be. And will you love yourself enough today to not be that ugly critter anymore? Let me show you how this works. Must be one to let the garbage down. You've got to be willing to trust God to provide for you in the midst of the hurt and the pain that he will be there for you, that there is no pain greater than his grace. It hurts too much to walk through this. That's a lie. You don't know the pain I've been through. No, I don't, but I know the God that will walk you through that pain if you'll trust him. And I know that because I've been there. I had enough pain that I wanted to die. I even told God, if you don't heal me, God, I'll help you kill me. You've got to trust him to provide, and you've got to be willing to enter into a relationship with the offender. Did you hear the key word? You must be willing to enter into the relationship with the offender. Did I say you must enter into a relationship with him? No. You've got to be willing. If you're not willing to let the drawbridge down, what are you going to be doing? Keeping the drawbridge up. What will help you keep the drawbridge up? Remembering what they did. This is a soul thing. It's a mind, emotion, will thing. I will to not let this drive right now. I will that because I'm setting my mind on what they did, those ugly buggers, and that stirs my emotions up, and the emotions help me keep the drive bridge up, and I'm not doing it. And the prison works. You've got to say, Father, I'm willing to enter into a relationship with this person. I'm willing to let the drawbridge down. Now, by the way, I'm not, going to, I'm not willing to let them continue to abuse me, right? As soon as they start to pull their shenanigans, what do I do with the drawbridge? Here I am, John Bowman has hurt me. John Bowman, you should never have hurt me. Don't you agree? But he hurt me, so I pulled the drawbridge up. What do I got to do? Father, this is wrong. I want to be a vessel of life. I don't want to be an ugly critter. I'm willing to enter into a relationship with John again. I'm willing to confront him. Here goes the drawbridge. Oh, John starts to hurt me again. I'm not letting you in my life to do that to me, buddy. That's wrong. But then what must I do? Forgive him again. Let the drawbridge down. And beginning to go after him again. Right? Willing to confront him if God so leads me to do it. Now, all of the above are only going to take place if I forgive. That's the cure for hurt. That's the cure. How do we forgive? Uh, incidentally, those who live in this sin-cursed world, I think every one of us has a lot to forgive. I think everybody here has a lot to forgive. And here's why we have to. We're a vessel... 2 Corinthians 4 says, we're made to hold something special. Remember that song? I'm a pot. I'm a vessel. Okay. 
Forgive me. We're almost done. We're made to hold Jesus, to express his life through us. But here's what happened. When we hold our hurts, all those various hurts, we become fortified vessels. See? And the life of Christ just is kind of like a pinball machine, you know, when you're like this. It can't flow through you. It can't. There's too much junk there. So what you've got to do is you've got to forgive all those things. Now notice, see the red? Still there, you didn't forget. You remembered and chose to forgive. That way when Satan comes to you and goes, remember what they did to you? I say, yes, I do. Thank you for reminding me that I'm a child of God and that I'm a forgiver. Go play your flesh trip on somebody who doesn't know how to handle you. Nah, nah, nah. See? But as soon as I go, yes, I remember, I'm sliding down. Yes, I remember, and I chose to forgive. I chose to forgive. I chose to forgive. And eventually the emotions will catch up with what you did. So here's how we go. Pull out your sheets that we gave you. Go home. Not right yet. We're almost done. Go home and pray. Psalm 139. Search me, O God. See if there's any wicked way in me. Make a list. Own what he shows you. I remember the time Dad lied to me, and I felt angry and hurt. The event and the emotion. Own it all. You can't give it away if you don't own it. The time Mom slapped me and I felt so humiliated and ashamed. Own it. And you can give it away. With an act of your will, forgiving them. Just as you have been forgiven everything. Because I'm a forgiver, I choose to forgive my dad right now. I forgive you, Dad, for hurting me, making me feel angry. And you put, like this, forgiven. 8-30-98. Mom... I choose to forgive you for what you did. Now, you're not saying this to them. It's between you and God in the heart. Be willing to enter into a relationship with that offender. That may mean that you're willing to confront them if God leads you to do it. Willing to confront them. Don't go right out there and confront them. Let the Holy Spirit lead you. Be willing for Father to heal their emotions. Heal your emotions. Why is that so important? Some of us don't want to be healed in our emotions. Some of us have grown so accustomed to the anger, we like it. We like being able to keep people away from us. Or we like the pity party that we get into because everybody goes, oh, and we, we thrive on that. Be willing for God to heal you. Emotionally. And quit wallowing in the past. Be willing for Father to not heal your emotions. Would he do that? Yeah, what's your greatest problem of all? Independence. So he might be willing to let you have some crummy emotions for a while so you'll depend on him. Once you've depended upon him and learned how to do that, he might take him away. So be willing to have those. And you know what you've got to do now? You've got to do it. Learning about forgiveness is not forgiven. Incidentally, if some of you are really onto this, I don't, I don't want to push tape. That's not my heart. What I want to push is truth. We have a series that's done four parts. It was done about seven years ago where we got very vulnerable and just step by step taught you how to do this. And if this is an issue for you, you may need to get a hold of those and enter into the freedom that Jesus purchased for you. You've got to go do it. It's hard work. But you've got to do it. Listen, I don't remember who it was. Matthew Brady, Civil War photographer, might have been him. There was a lot of devastation in the Civil War. A lot of atrocities, a lot of pain. Limbs severed, right? Well, he took tons and tons of pictures. Pictures of those days were in place. But you know what happened to him? He found out there was no market for it. People wanted to forget. 
all the pain of the Civil War. So you know what he did with his glass plate? He built a greenhouse with it. And inside he put his plants. And there were the etchings that were on those portraits. But what happened over the years, as the sun shone down on those plates, the images faded away. Wow. What an illustration. As you allow the Son of God to shine on your life, those horrible, horrible memories will become just that. Memories. And life will blossom on the inside. Please, my friends, love yourself enough to forgive your offender. My Father, teach us all how to be forgivers because it's who we are. And we don't want to be captives. We don't want to be prisoned. We want to be vessels of your life. We want to be the beautiful creations that we were created to be. So help us to do this incredibly, incredibly awkward and yet amazing thing to forgive and enjoy the freedom that's our birthright. Amen and amen. Steve,